1: Good day. Welcome to New Books in Military History. I am Boris Skarpa, and with me here is a guest we've, which we've had on our show before, Captain Arthur Glaxon, and we are here with the second volume of his book, Bloody Verrier, the first SS Panzer Corps defense of the verrier Bourgeois Ridges. This is volume two. We've discussed volume one here before welcome to our show arthur
0: oh well, hello boris thank you for having me on
1: now we've talked a little bit about well we've had a whole show about the first volume of this book and um, because this is a second uh, second and final volume i would um, we've talked a bit about the planning which you've put into your work and there's something which i would like to ask you know the Battle of Year is not a it, It's not exactly the most famous battle of World War Two. It's uh, also not the biggest, not the longest. What is it that about this battle which you felt required you know, this two-volume coverage, this this very detailed, uh, this very? I appreciate it was very hard work. It was very thorough treatment. Oh
0: um, well, thank you for for, for asking. It's um it, it I found out very quickly in discussions with Ruth Shepard, the my editor at CaseMate, that there was enough material out there for two volumes. Uh, first, the the German response in in volume one. To the British Gigantic uh, Three Armored Division Attack of Operation Goodwood and the Canadian um, side-by-side Operation Atl- supporting operation Operation Atlantic. Um, it, but, but there was also enough, more than enough material for Operation Spring and some of the very, very heavy fighting for a village uh, called Tilly la Campagne, uh, which is just to the east of uh, Verrier's Ridge of course, Verrieres Ridge and Borgibus Ridge, uh, just to the east of the Orne, And they're very much uh, sought after tactical features, tactically important to the Germans. The Germans, of course, um, very much interested in this area because it's flat. Well, not flat, but it's uh, good enough for tanks. And using, put well, putting these tanks and maneuvering them around on top of Verrieres and Borgibus Ridges, they have the advantage of uh, excellent visibility, um, use of their Panther and Tiger tank optics to shoot up basically whatever's coming uh, towards them um, and to uh, place their artillery observers on top of various and Borgibus ridges. And this, this advantage allowed the Germans to use their anti-tank guns as well as the tanks during Operation Goodwood to crush and halt the British uh, armored assault of uh, their 8th Corps. And um, once I'd finished up that book for Volume One, um, there's a subsequent operation, Operation Spring, which is very much very important in Canadian historiography of the Normandy campaign. It's uh, somewhat disastrous for the Canadian forces involved. It's almost, I argue, uh, a second Dieppe if you if you think about the um, the August 1942 uh, Dieppe raid on the French port of Dieppe, in which uh, the the Canadian uh, assaulting forces as well as some British Royal Marine Commandos were, were badly defeated and huge losses were put on them, um, inflicted on them. Now, with Verrier's Ridge, it doesn't happen all in one day. It's a slow grinding process, but the equivalent of this the, the loss is taken by the 2nd Canadian Infantry Division the same division that was present at Dieppe is arguably I believe a second Dieppe because there's so many infantry casualties it precipitated something within the Canadian army in August and early September called the Infantry Other Ranks Reinforcement Crisis the Germans killed or wounded or took prisoner so many Canadians that um they're literally running out of reinforcements and thus the infantry battalions at the conclusion of the Normandy campaign and into September 1944 were very much under strength. Luckily, the Germans were desperately trying to evacuate France at this time and the Normandy campaign had been won. But with this all-volunteer Canadian army, uh, these, these losses um, were just as catastrophic and it could not be contained or not could, could not be replaced easily. Um, and, and I felt that in some ways, this is my deep book in that this, this disaster has to be properly explained in minute detail. And also you're saying, you know, well, why did Casemate, why didn't it just do one big volume? Um, each of these are tremendous bang for their buck as far as, you know, the Casemate marketing Strategy goes because it allows a, a U.S. reader to to purchase 250-page book with these brand new maps, excellent photos, as well as you know this huge amount of very dense text uh, for 37.95. Now, if they made it into a two-volume, you know, for I guess. Uh, at about $74 and, you know, have it 500 pages. It, it, <laughs> people wouldn't buy as many of them. And, and of course they, uh, you know, if they like the the first one, they'll come back for the second one. So these are very much digestible and buyable books that have a lot of bang for their buck for them. Um, so the, you know, sales are going very, very well. People are interested in this. And I believe the the, the British and the, the American and the Canadian readers um, very much are interested in this, minute detail type approach that I've taken and these maps that show the Germans you know a lot of times it was uh, uh, very much a, a new historical topic as far as you know what I've, uh, I've investigated right now the, the German operations uh, on Verrier's Ridge and Borgibus Ridge well there have been lots of books on what the British forces and Canadian forces were doing there The the detail on what the Germans were doing and the investigation of these primary documents that I do in this second volume allows uh, a before unseen picture to be, to emerge of the Germans. What was important to them? What were their military goals? What were they good at? What were they terrible at? What were the Allies doing that was really causing them a, a tremendous amount of trouble? And um, how, how did they approach Verrieres and Borgibus Rich? And, and my conclusion is that Rommel you know, Erwin Rommel, before he's taken out on the 17th of July by uh, RCAF Spitfire passing and shooting up his, his vehicle, he very much saw Verrieres and Borjibus Ridge as another second Battle of El Alamein, just like the um, in North Africa, except this time he does have All the good panzer divisions, every single one of them that can be scraped up very much to the detriment of the Western German forces, the 7th Army facing the U.S. Army in Normandy, but in in, uh, south of uh, Caen and Verrieres and Bourgibus Ridge, and to the west in Hill 112 and 113 facing the British just to the west of the Orne River, there is no shortage of panzers or panzer divisions, and they are ready, ready to fight another battle of El Alamein. But in France, <laughs> on this perfect or somewhat perfect tank country, it's not as good as the desert. But uh, hopefully, that that answers your question there, Boris.
1: Thank you, Arthur. Now, from this, um, you know we we've said uh, we've said it, it's a very detailed book. Um, uh, clearly, um, a lot of work went into it. Um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the work which went into the second volume, some of the difficulties which you've overcome when you were working on it?
0: Yes. um, Well, through the Canadian Army, we'll service through that. And as many officers in the Canadian Army, Air Force and and Navy know that uh, French is a very important part of our lives um, and and learning French and written, writing French, um, and so that wasn't you know French wasn't exactly a problem. And I utilized a lot of, uh, the French secondary sources. And there's some amazing French, um, military historians based out of Normandy, based out of Bayeux, based out of Caen, which is, you know, some of the biggest cities in Normandy and within the university of Caen, uh, there, the, the military history scene, if you would call it there is, um, very, very good. So that wasn't a problem. That tremendously, tremendously helped me communicating with them and looking at some of these French secondary sources. What the problem was for me as a, as a non-native German speaker is um, learning German, understanding the German military speak of the primary documents and you know after a while I understood the gist of you know many many reports and sentences you know you see with military reports so there's a lot of repetition and certain words jump out at you you know what's going on it's an attack or a defense or um the trauma trauma affair you know the drum fire um for um, you know the artillery talking about that um but uh just learning German, understanding German, developing my understanding of German, as well as you know, uh, engaging in conversational German uh, with some German speakers, as well as um, I had to master optical character recognition that's OC. OCR, OCR. And I use that technology to the absolute maximum in translating uh, the German uh, primary documents and war diaries, some of which still exist, others which have been destroyed, you know, uh, very much hurting my historical research. But I made the absolute most out of what remained. And uh, this really added to the book it added that detail you know of what the Germans were doing, what their their um, aims were, what their their objectives were, what was important to them, um, what was uh, you know not as important, what sort of losses they were taking and how how hard they would fight or you know try to defend certain objectives. the Germans of course being very much on the defensive st- in this in this, uh, in this uh, um, part of the Normandy campaign. And also something that is important when you're looking at the Canadian war diaries, as well as the German war diaries or reports, or, you know, there is sometimes the the writers will put a certain spin on things to minimize negative events or defeats and to maximize uh, positive events such as as victories or perceived victories. Um, And often if something is really bad, it'll be omitted from the report altogether. So you have to work even harder to try to piece together What the truth is, the historical truth, as being, you know, one person said this, another person said this, and 17 other reports said this, and somewhere in between, in the middle of all this, of all these conflicting accounts, is the closest thing that a historian can establish as the truth, or, you know, the most accurate um, uh, evaluation of events. And then, of course, the historian jumps on top of this to make his or her own analysis in order to to you know to put the final judgment, so to speak, on a historical event, and you know declare you know it was a success for the Canadians or a defeat for the Canadians or the Germans uh, achieved a modest defensive success with this counterattack and so on and so forth, and also looking at other documents indicating losses and um, um, strengths and uh, the amount of forces involved and resources or lack of resources. So yes, another great challenge was putting together that historical picture, which is often a, a terrible struggle for, for military historians, and made something made even worse by the lack of German primary documents, which, the, which are very, very good and survive, but right up until the year 1943. And of course, we're in the summer of 1944. So the struggle for those primary documents, some of which Um, You know, I had to go to tremendous lengths to to obtain, um, but they were absolutely vital. And and sometimes I I got information from from strange sources such as awards decoration uh, paperwork submissions of course the commander would be submitting his uh his subordinate for some kind of military award within the third reich within its military machine within the Worm Act. and of course he had to 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 write a report of the action and sometimes these are elaborated or you know made to look better in the in the particular uh, person's uh, light who's being nominated due to the fact that they certainly had to you know, get the award or, you know, he had to succeed in, in obtaining it, the, 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 the overall higher commander in order to get his uh, subordinate to get that award. But these, um, these awards uh, submission paperwork um, these largely still survive, you know, if they're going to get the German cross in gold or the Knights cross or something like that. And they talk about the actions of these officers in this particular battle. And that sometimes often uh, makes up for the lack of, of a, a, a surviving war diary or written official account of the battle. But you just have to watch out for the over elaboration of, of the story, you know, to make the certain person, the nominee look good. Uh, but um Yes, yes, that that search for the truth, uh, looking for the, the the proper translation of German documents, sometimes looking at the same piece of paper seven or eight times, you know, in order to say, okay, have I got this properly uh, translated? It's uh, it's it was a struggle, but hopefully that that answers your question, Boris.
1: Once again, thank you, Arthur. We and I now have um, a question, which you know I. In your book, you talk about uh, the great difficulties which you know senior com- Canadian commanders had with um, adapting themselves to the situation and you know, handling handling information which they were getting from the front lines. Sometimes it's in the in the form where they get intelligence reports which don't quite make it to senior commanders, and sometimes it just just seems to be some inability to learn from events, where they keep trying similar tactics which they you know you know haven't worked, or have you know have uh, caused terrible casualties. And uh, well, sometimes there's a lack of coordination between different units. And so I would like to ask, and we are in 1944 and a time where, in, you know, generally allied tactics have evolved significantly from what they were prior to this. And so it raises the question of... Um, was there an institutional issue? Was there something with how the headquarters were organized or or was or was it a problem with the specific officers who were in command? W- what do we learn about how they learned or did not learn?
0: Um, it, the The Canadian Army in Northwest Europe in in June and July and some parts of August is a very interesting creature. And that these units, well, there have been some, you know, insertion of some veteran officers from Italy and uh, North Africa and Sicily inserted into, you know, key command positions. This is the army that did not go to Italy, that did not go to Sicily. And they have spent from, you know, in some cases, even from 1940, right up until the spring of 1943 with the exception of various raids and sometimes in the participation in the, the Dieppe Operation uh, training on Salisbury Plain and other training uh, grounds within southern England as part of their, you know, garrison duties. And as um, in 1943 turned into 1944, very much training for the, the assault phase of Operation Overlord, uh, the assault on Juno Beach. Now we come into uh, July 1944, late 1940, or late July 1944, and there's a huge demand placed upon the army to, um, at the, at the core level to, to uh, conduct offensive operations, uh, dynamic offensive operations, and a lot of people, sometimes, um, you know, see, you know, they, they look at the Second World War and they see it as vastly different from the First World War, the 1914-1918 uh, War, the Great War. But had the Canadian tactics changed all that much, had the British Army changed all that much from 1918 to the year 1943, 1942, 1944. Um, infantry tactics, you know, the, there is some new technology, but the, the the idea of, um, you know, so a massive tank attack, well, you know, we did see some instances of this, the battles of villers bocage uh, Operation Goodwood, uh, some others, but looking at some other battles within Normandy and some operations, it very much resembles the First World War battlefield in that it, it was very much infantry-led, bite and hold, with, you know, often a not massive armored force, but a sprinkling of armor, but not in overwhelming amounts, such as you might see on the Eastern Front, with giant Soviet tank armies maneuvering with the huge amounts of tanks on the the plains of the Ukrainian steppe. And so we often see uh, a highly scripted, highly organized, almost Vimy Ridge-style assault and that's what in this second volume uh, volume two bloody barriers and to a certain extent with um with uh, operation atlantic discussed in in volume one we see uh the core staff of the second canadian corps very much running the operation very much uh, planning everything into the smallest minute you know what certain battalions do when they'll do it certain phases and of course Certain battalions will pass through other battalions that have captured objectives first to move on to second and third and fourth battalions. And just like in the First World War, when they'd unleashed, they had the plan, the final plan to unleash the cavalry divisions and the the, the riders on horseback, except the equivalent for that in the summer of 1944 is to unleash the armor after the infantry has chewed its way through. Now, of course, as as the listeners today can probably understand, if Something happens terrible in the first or second stages with these infantry battalions. It derails the whole of this highly scripted sequence of events. And the battalion commanders are sort of on their own. They only have so many resources. And because uh, Lieutenant General Guy Simmons, the commander of the 2nd Canadian Corps, had um, highly scripted everything, the ability of brigade commanders or divisional commanders to deploy reserves or control reserves or deploy overwhelming force if they see saw fit for it was somewhat limited. So you have Simmons with a this is, you know, the, the, the sort of the three refusals of Guy Simmons, refusal to trust his subordinates, refusal to delegate authority, Refusal to make the execution of the end state um, non-scripted in the in to to so he always has very very tight control on the operation from start to finish, and for some units of the Canadian Army, Operation Atlantic's in spring are are their first actions. That's the second Canadian Infantry Division, the third Canadian Infantry Division had been there since since Juno Beach, um, now. Did he over attack during spring on the twenty fifth of June, the same day as the the victorious Operation Cobra starts for the Americans in the West? But during Operation Spring, he very much attacks as he did in Operation Atlantic with an infantry first assault, and and these there is no overwhelming you know large group of Canadian armor to attack and destroy the Germans into a in effect win an armored battle. So a lot of these. Infantry battalions, when they first were, you know, attacking at night, the first part of the attack for Operation Spring was at night, Um, when they ran into trouble or were attacked at night by German tanks, they didn't have this, um, the ability to draw in, put in reserves uh, to to attack with overwhelming force, they only had the forces that were at hand. And the ability in 1944 to pass information, especially in the middle of the night when everyone's exhausted and tired, um, the radios were very, very fragile. And the ability for infantry battalion commanders and even the company commanders to carry radios with them um, in the middle of the darkness You know, these terribly fragile radios that would break down at the drop of a hat, the ability for a brigade commander, a divisional commander, or even the corps commander to even know, have the slightest inkling of what is going on and to fix it and sort of have that fingertip feel. There's a translation of fingertip feel uh, into German, which, you know, is a a reference to their military commander's ability to read the battlefield, to be on the battlefield, and also... um, the, the brigade and divisional commanders were very much within bunkers, sometimes two to three kilometers behind the front lines, waiting for reports, you know, very much, you know, often just reliant on runners that would run into the headquarters and say something that happened or did not happen or an accurate or an inaccurate report. So that flexibility when things are spinning out of control or the Canadian infantry battalions or companies or platoons are getting savaged by a group of uh, German Panzer IV tanks or Panther tanks and they're shooting them up quite, quite badly, the ability to, to respond with overwhelming force overwhelming combat power such as the united states for example deployed during operation desert storm in 1991 to to simply sweep away the the uh the iraqis in a in an overwhelming matter with there's absolutely no no uh no question as to the the outcome this this overwhelming force overwhelming firepower it's it's never there for the canadians at the first part of the battle when it really counts and um rather than the first world war creeping barrage they do on-time concentrations which is an artillery term for you know uh, bombardment of a certain map uh grid or uh, a town or village for a certain amount of time and this was supposedly good enough um and of course how were the infantrymen in pitch darkness going to to follow a creeping barrage and they you know it's it wouldn't really work um but um they, they attempt to use innovative tactics in the way of shining anti-aircraft spotlights off the low cloud. And this works and it doesn't work in that the Germans uh, take tremendous tactical advantage of this as the Canadian soldiers are silhouetted by this light that, that makes it easy for the German machine gunners to you know shoot them up. But this, my Lieutenant, uh, General Simmons, the corps commander for the, the 2nd Canadian Corps, is attacking with the 2nd and 3rd Canadian Infantry Division, supported almost administratively by the 2nd Canadian Armoured Brigade. The, the brigade is not fought as a formation to attack the Germans, but its its squadrons within its armored three armoured regiments are almost penny-packeted out. There's no other word for it other than that 1940 term for the French Army during the, the blitzkrieg. Penny packeting out of armor, rather than having the the overwhelming mailed or uh, iron clad mail f- armored fist of you know 200 or 300 tanks all massed together, or 180 tanks um, of of the second Canadian armored brigade to to attack and you know to attempt to fight and win an armored battle and bash their way through for the other. Uh, c- Formations which are often very much forgotten about during Operation Spring. There was the Guards Armoured Division, the British Armoured Division, very very powerful, and the British Seventh Armoured Division, very very powerful. Now the the everything goes wrong for Simmons, and um, uh, um, what is it? Uh, not Lieutenant General, but General Miles Dempsey, the the commander of the British Second uh, Army. He is very much. Uh, put limits on Simmons after seeing the effects of Operation Atlantic and how badly some Canadian infantry battalions were destroyed there. He says if you don't have success with your infantry attack by, you know, a certain time the next, you know, mid midday on the 25th, he would not commit. The the Guards Armored Division, the 7th Armored Division, he shut the whole operation down and wouldn't let Simmons use these follow, follow-on divisions. But I argue in the book, you know, this this refusal, almost steadfast refusal to commit Maximum force, maximum artillery attack, maximum armored attack, maximum force, of course, was always needed. It's needed today. It's, it was needed in in, um, in Iraq during uh, the Operation Desert Storm. And it was uh, very much needed at certain times during the Second World War. And it is not committed by... Um, by by Simmons in this case. And, you know, this over-scheduled, you know, uh, bite-and-hold First World War-style attack with these infantry battalions, the Germans just chew it up. And there's a tremendous tragedy with the the Black Watch, Royal Highland, or the Black Watch of Canada, the Royal Highland Regiment of Canada, is is terribly defeated by German tank fire as it's um, attempting almost single-handedly to advance up Verrier's Ridge. And you know the the German tank commanders can't can't believe it at first. This massive Canadian men going through these fields of wheat, and they're they're just chewed up by the German MG42 machine gun fire as well as the Panzer IV tank fire from the village of Maisuron, and it's a it's a terrible defeat. And the fact that that brigade commander, the Fifth Canadian Infantry Brigade, who who has the Black Watch under its command, uh, can't. Uh, summon maximum force or even organize the the attacks themselves is is a terrible tragedy and it shows the lack of trust that simmons had in his brigade commanders not allowing them to have access to reserves and not allowing them to form their own battle groups to do the job and to plan the 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 attack themselves in the way that german um, regimental and brigade level commanders were given that that responsibility through abstract tactic which i'm sure you'll ask me about maybe a little bit more here um but over to you boris
1: yes um, i would like to actually um, actually zoom in on this a little bit um, you talk a little in your book about how Germans were more flexible, how they had a better ability to um, to adapt to the situation that they were in, which was a very difficult situation for them because a lot of these units, like you wrote in your book, were weakened already. They were had uh, shortages of certain equipment. Now, in your in the previous volume, you. Um, it uh, it talked uh, a lot about the structure of their headquarters and how they how this um, affected their decision making, and um, in this book, of course, you also talk about their training and uh, um, mission type tactics. Uh, uh, off uh, uh, off tracks. I'm sorry, it's difficult for me. The the, the mission type tactics which they used. Um, and how these things fit together. So, um, I'd like to ask you, do you think there was something about the way in which they were organized, uh, the layout of their divisional structure, which made it easier for the command staff to sort of um, integrate the pieces of information they were receiving to make the decisions?
0: Uh, Yes. um, When you see it... In the Canadian Army of 1944, there's a huge focus on paperwork and written orders. And, you know, very detailed. Everything is set piece. The, the Battle of Vimy Ridge is fought over and over and over and over again. And, of course, this is all very good for rehearsals. And, you know, what we're going to do this. And we're going to do that. And we're going to do this. But it's all very, very highly scripted. And and the the, the, the delegation of authority is, is very, very limited. Um, so... The the Germans often, they, you know, I talk about this in my um, chapter on within the book uh, called the, the, the attack of the Hohenstaufen division. It's, um, Let's just see what chapter it is here, just briefly for a second. It's uh, yes, chapter eight: the attacks of the Hohenstaufen, twenty-seven to twenty or twenty-five to twenty-seven July. Um, this is, of course, in reference to the 9th SS Panzer Division Hohenstaufen, which is um, located in in a reserve in depth uh, beside the Orne River and to the west of it. Some parts of it are to the east. Um, and what it has to do or what what, what it happens during uh, 25th of July operation spring the um, it is for lack of very good intelligence on the German part, the, the Germans don't really know for sure if another good wood is happening with Operation Spring. Is this another three-division British armored tank assault that's about to happen? And without waiting to really find out, they unleash the Hohenstaufen. And of course, the chief of staff of the 1st SS Panzer Corps calls up the divisional commander and gives... Um, has uh, very, very, um, general broad brush instructions on the end state he wishes to, to, um, to, uh, to obtain, uh, correction, sorry. He speaks with the chief of staff, the divisional commander for the 9th SS Panzer Division, Hohensoff, and is driving around at the time. And he speaks to the chief, divisional chief of staff. Um, and he gives them, of course, that the, the rough, um, Um, direction, you know, you'll take one battle group, you'll do this, you'll take your other battle group, and you're going to do this. But at that time, at that point, he says, right, any questions no get to it that's it and so that that actual telephone conversation is everything it is everything because of course they've been put in the counterattack role they're to deploy the forward to various ridge to fight to defend the ridge and to defeat any uh, massive uh, canadian or british armored attack or you know whatever attack you know materializes it's all been reversed and spoken about so everybody knows what to do But from that point on, the uh, the divisional commander arrives at the command post of the 9th SS Panzer Division, Hohenstaufen, speaks with the chief of staff who relates everything, puts him in the picture. And then when the various battle group commanders, uh, there's two major battle groups, uh, battle group uh, Zollhofer and battle group Meyer, uh, they arrive. One one battle group is based on the tank regiment. The other one's based on what's left of their Panzer Grenadier forces. Of course, all the German forces within Normandy at this time facing huge amounts of attrition. Uh, both people and, you know, equipment. Um, the only way that these, uh, you know, units or units or divisions are rebuilt is, you know, in the fall of 1944. So when the Germans, you know, talk about reinforcements or something like that, it's brand new units. That's how they do it. That's how they, they, they get reinforcements. Um, but, um, there's a tremendous amount of, of informal talk back at the 9th SS Panzer Division, um, headquarters in which the battle group commanders are summoned forward and they're given um very rough uh, uh attack objectives one is to go through the the village of may on the left flank and then push north towards points hill 67 which is an important tactical feature the other uh, battle group is sent off to conquer verrier's ridge this being myers battle group with um and this is not Kurt Meyer. It's another Meyer who's uh, in charge of the 9th SS Panzer Division um, tank regiment. And he has various infantry forces and artillery forces are attached to both of these regiments. And then there's, um, uh, the, the, the division commander and the chief of staff also speak to the artillery commander and say, you will you know, support these two battle groups in their advance to the North over the river orne and up to various Ridge and the village of Mace or on to deal with the Canadians there. But once they're unleashed off, they go and the battle group commanders zip back to their battle groups, which are already in motion, which they've, you know, they've set them off already. They know what the plan is and roughly what they're doing and they've set them in motion. Um, and then the, um, The the division commander does eventually travel north to meet with them and to give them a bit more detail. But he gives them just enough to keep going and just enough to to get them um, a a basic understanding of what his end state is. You know, driving the Canadians off Barrier's Ridge, the, the, the saving of that important tactical feature and clearing them out of May. And um, as a third objective, you know, the the total destruction of whatever massive Canadian attack is going on to completely shut it down, and then in, in a in a in a counterattack or a Panzer charge to the north to seize uh, Hill 67 to clear off Verrier's Ridge and push northwards, um, if the opportunity promotes itself. And of course, these German battle group commanders, when they're you know back with their people, you know, in the field, and they're traveling north towards the Canadians, they're pretty much cut off, uh, from communication. They know what they're supposed to do. They know who's on the left and right flank of them, but, uh, due to radio triangulation, something that's, uh, very horrible from the Germans and a lot of historians don't really understand how bad this was, um, Any German um, uh, uh, high-frequency radio communications would automatically get picked up and triangulated by Canadian or British artillery units who would then uh, use triangulation to locate the rough area of this transmission and automatically uh, deliver a, a very crushing um, artillery bombardment or concentration on that location. They couldn't see what was there, but, you know, they're going to blast it. So you see a lot of verbal communication and movement of German commanders using vehicles back and forth to their units that meet with the various um, you know Panther company tank commander and talk to him about what he's going to do and then drive away and back to his tactical headquarters, which is often moving or often in a bunker very close to the front line. So And, of course, they would risk their lives um, you know, being exposed in this manner, so we see the um, the what call it? The commander of the Ninth SS Panzer Division, he is badly wounded in in July, and of course, um, his chief of staff, uh, no, is the uh, the art the artillery regimental commander takes over for as commander of the 9th SS Panzer Division. And this is also a terrible, terrible problem for the Allies or for the Germans, which uh, totally impairs their command and control. Is that the shelling never ever ever stops it just goes on and on and on and on and of course the the British Americans and Canadian armies and their artillery units the royal artillery and the royal Canadian artillery a royal regiment of Canadian artillery they have nearly bottomless um bottomless pits of, uh, of 25 pounder shells that that are constantly going on but you see a hugely informal German Method of operation based on achieving very roughly defined objectives rather than, you know, put all on paper, you know, that, you know, Simmons could confront his battalion commanders with later on and say, you didn't achieve this objective and you didn't attack when you did, and you didn't to uh, achieve victory, even though I didn't give you enough um, assets, how the Kampfgruppen, the the Kampfgruppe, that's a German term for the battle group, how they operated with what um, assets they had is certainly up to them, how they deployed those assets, how they fought their battles, how they attempted to maneuver on the battlefield all that was mattered was achieving that very rough instinct and of course the Germans had very, very much practiced in this this command structure and this off strike tactic uh defensive way of fighting uh because they had been doing it you know from some parts of 1942 uh for roughly half of 1943 you know in Russia and all of 1944 in Russia so were they very very good at it yes um, one of the two factors that really threw the Germans for a loop in Normandy was the artillery the severity of the non-stop never-ending endless artillery and of course anytime it was beautiful enough weather for fighter bombers to fly the endless death from above the constant strafing and during Operation Spring some of the small successes of the second Canadian Corps are you know in effect saved from German counterattacks due to the intervention of the typhoon and the Spitfire fighter bombers and the very, very brave pilots who fight back in the village of Verrieres and save the Royal Hamilton light infantry from being engulfed in a Panther tank attack, which is very, you know, given a, you know, a a brushing over within within the Canadian official history. Um, you know, as well as various British forces that do come in and intervene on Verrier's Ridge to, you know, very much make a fight of it. But their their his their part in the historical record, the official Canadian history of the the Normandy campaign, you know, published by the Canadian Army, is is very much somewhat brushes this over. But the um the how the Germans operated is very much uh, very very flexible. And, of course, this could lead to very, very good results, but often very bad results, you know, because they're sort of operating in a vacuum at times. And, you know, if things were going very, very badly for the Germans, it uh, took their higher headquarters uh, some time to learn about it and react. Um, if that delegated camp group commander did not have the proper resources to handle any type of situation, the the allocation of, of reserves and more units, more, more, um, More resources on top, you know, because uh, they were resources were very scarce, so. Um, there's very much stressed importance upon that, that battle group commander having enough, enough to do what he was asked to do, or at least to hold the Allies off in some fat way, shape, or form. And um, this, well, it goes very right for the Germans on Verrier's Ridge and Borgibus Ridge, and they, they savage the, the British 8th Corps and the Canadian 2nd Corps. Uh, it goes very wrong for them during Operation Cobra. Um, When um, the the United States Infantry Divisions, the the 4th Infantry Division, the 9th Infantry Division and the 30th Infantry Division attack and literally hack their way through the German lines through just overwhelming force in a very small um, little area. And uh, the Germans, you know, they don't know what's happening until it's literally too late. So communication is everything. And so while the, the German Kampfgruppen, aufstrag tactics, uh, way of fighting did often bring success. And it's, you know, when it went bad, it went really, really bad. Uh, so hopefully that, that gives you some insight there, Boris.
1: I would like to just... Uh ask you, do you have any general conclusions, you know, you know, because it's, it's both a military history um, show which we're having, which is both about the history and the military science. Do you think that there is something we can learn from this uh, from this uh, terrible moment in, in time, which could be applicable to military science today, is there anything we can say in general about what what makes uh, what makes it easier for military organizations to be more flexible to learn from their uh, from uh, problems which they're having to adapt to difficulties which they're having?
0: Yes, um, technology is everything, and it seems. Um, infantry are more vulnerable than ever of course during operation desert storm the the, the you know the epitome of success we have this uh, tremendous advantage the american army um the seventh corps has in in um its uh its its technology and its abrams tanks and its bradley fighting vehicles and total air superiority but um in, in Normandy in 1944, technology is very much, in some ways, very much beneficial to the Allies for their air war, their tactical air war over Normandy. But there's almost an inability to fight and win a tank battle. Uh, for so it, it says, it says tremendous amount about the importance of technology, the ability of armor to attack. And destroy the enemy. You know, go right through them in sort of like a uh, cavalry charge uh, in the Middle Ages with knights on horseback, and the, during the Crusades or something like that. It's um, it's very, very much needed in in a Desert Storm style fashion. Oh.
1: Hello, Arthur. We've had a small technical issue, and I'd like to circle back to what you said before our connection dropped off slightly. Mm, I'd like to circle back to what you said about uh, the, the technology and how it connects to operational and technical flexibility.
0: Uh, yes, um, the technology, as it was in 1944, very, very important today in 2023, uh, you see uh, the importance, the overwhelming importance of, of having the, the, the absolute correct technology to do the job and to, to do it in a fashion so that your infantry on the battlefield survives. Uh, it's very, very important. Um, and we see uh, some, some allied technology during 1944, for example, fighter bombers and artillery pieces and, and organizations, you know, that use this technology being very much superior. Uh, other organizations on the Allied side, such as the armored corps, armored regiments, um, various uh, uh, tank units, as well as the tank technology, the Sherman tank. Um, Sometimes uh, coming up a bit short, so the ability to um, you know launch a massive Falnix-like armored assault, um, such as in Desert Storm, you're absolutely cutting through the enemy like butter um, with um, thousands—not hundreds, thousands, but but hundreds of uh, hundreds of uh, Abrams tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles—all making excellent progress to achieve their their battlefield objectives. Um, that ability on the British or the Anglo-Canadian side uh, with the armored uh, regiments they had at their disposal and how they the the level of technology they were equipped with, uh, it wasn't there. And such the Germans with their superior technology at times, even though the German tanks were sometimes uh, mechanically not as reliable or were not as uh, serviceable, um, they did have excellent guns and excellent armor. And Fighting defensively, as the Germans were for the majority of the Normandy campaign, they are able to stop and sometimes uh, shut down um, Allied offensive operations. So, um, just as we see um, in the Ukraine, there's the battlefield uh, front lines. Uh, sometimes they're very fluid, and sometimes there's they're not. That ability to cut through the enemy like butter is sometimes not there and also it all depends on what technology is being used its level and its its ability to to return on its investment that is to uh for lack of a better word it's so a little bit um a little bit crude and and not very nice to say but the ability to kill the enemy and kill them quickly and to thus achieve your military objectives and push through the, the the enemy's front line it it has to be there of course Nothing um, reinforces uh, the need for change like defeats and heavy, heavy casualties, especially when you have a finite amount of humans you can feed into the equation or the, the cauldron of, of battle. Um, success, of course, everybody wants to jump on a bandwagon of success and follow a proven or new formula uh, that, that suddenly works or uses technology that is available in a different way. Uh, and then, of course, when uh, people are getting killed, that nothing drives innovation like that. It's uh, also very not 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 very nice to say. And and the Germans in 1944, they had learned from Operation Goodwood and the massive uh, bomber attack. You know, they're using the strategic four-engine bombers to, to, I talk about this in volume one, to to annihilate um, the front lines of the, the Germans. And thus, they placed all their armored divisions very much in depth sometimes five or even 10 kilometers back from the, the front lines of the battlefield. And these, these armored units were meant to drive forward and thus escape the the, the technological industrial assault of the Allies with these four-engine bombers that are used to literally carpet bomb the, the enemy. Um, and so often we, we see uh, an almost a static front at times within Normandy, you know, as, as long as that... The, you know, without that heavy, heavy use of of technology in the way of four engine bombers or massive artillery bombardments, uh, or you know, massing three tank divisions to attack at once, the the front lines didn't didn't move all that quickly. Uh, so in June, you know, it takes until you know the first part of July for the city of Khan to fall, and the and the British are somewhat held up. Um, and it's it seems at times like it's almost devolving into a 1915-style Flanders Field static warfare in places. Of course, the, the British very much want to avoid this at all costs, and, and Montgomery saying, attack, attack, attack. Uh, but the, the technology in order to carry out that 1991 Desert Storm-style assault across the desert... Um, it's it's not there. And then the British, they have to fall back, the Anglo-Canadian forces have to fall back on the too big, the one-two punch, the artillery and the use of air power, both uh, for tactical ground attack and the heavy bombers, which are re-rolled from bombing German cities in the Ruhr back to the Stone Age to, to bombing parts of the German front line in order to, to create that hole in the, the front line and to allow their, their units to... Uh, carry out operational maneuver warfare which at times very much eludes the British due to this lack of technology this lack of technology which vastly impairs the Royal Armored Corps which vastly impairs the Canadian Armored Corps from attacking in mass just like Desert Storm to attack and destroy the enemy and to win the tank battle and it also did not help that a lot of Canadian units um that are fighting in Normandy were under the command of Simmons, who had just come from Italy, which is a very much not a tank friendly environment. So you have this infantry first mentality with a penny packet of tanks. And thus it reinforces the, we don't need a huge amount of armor. And if we try this as the British did in 19, in operation Goodwood in the 18th of July, then a huge amount of tanks will be knocked out by the Germans. So let's fight, fight like we did in Italy. Infantry first, with a penny packet of tanks, but there's a problem. the The, the Germans are deployed in massive, massive force south of Con. They have all these Panzer divisions, and they're not fighting as they fought in Italy. They're fighting to, to an to annihilation, to defeat, and to fight this giant battle of El Alamein, to to beat back the Anglo-British or Anglo-Canadian forces um, in order to to save their front in Normandy. Of course, totally denuding the western part of their their Normandy frontage and allowing the Americans to break through, which they do in dynamic fashion with Operation Cobra. But um, I guess um, these days uh, nothing reinforces. Um, or nothing achieves battlefield success like uh, the, the, a new technology and uh, allow you to, to maximize your combat force and achieve uh, instantaneous results, such as that were achieved uh, during Operation Desert Storm. I keep going back because that's the, what, to my mind, the, the ultimate example of the superior application of, of combat uh, or technology to, to, um, to, to mass uh, combat force in, in order to achieve your objectives in a dynamic fashion very, very quickly. So hopefully that that uh, answers your question there, Boris.
1: Thank you, thank you, Arthur. Now I would like to move on to the last question of our show, which you know, which is a traditional question. As I always say, we're creatures of tradition here. Can you tell us about the books you are reading right now? Where are you at your current step in your book journey?
0: Oh, yes, um, I am re- currently reading two books. Um, I've just started this one. Uh, the fellow who wrote the, uh, very nice to write the, the foreword uh, for my book is very much established Eastern Front, a um, historian, uh, retired Colonel U.S. Army Douglas E. Nash, Sr., and this is the second volume of his From the Realm of a Dying Son uh, trilogy. Uh, this is volume two, the, the the fourth SS Panzer Corps Um attempting to relieve budapest it's the in the in the in the budapest relief efforts december 1944 to february 1945 and you know people often forget you know where were some of the best panzer divisions as the uh as the russians and the americans and the british swarmed over germany and invaded it from the east and invaded it from the west so they were in Hungary fighting to attempt to save the Hungarian capital and prop up the, um, the last ally of Germany, um, the, uh, the Hungarian army, um, and Douglas Enash, former, um, Professor within the United States Marine Corps University, I believe, as well as, you know, after a long and distinguished career within the U.S. Army, has fully transformed himself into an amazing military historian. And these books, uh, Salesways, for my publisher, Casemate, are doing very, very well from the realm of a dying sun, if the, the hopefully the listeners can remember that. Uh, he provides an excellent map and excellent detail and is probably one of the first and foremost military historians of the Eastern Front uh, today. Uh, the second book uh, came out a little while ago, but I'm know pushing through it right now. Is Gunners in Normandy by uh, Will Towand and Frank Baldwin. Unfortunately, one of those authors has have passed away now. But this is the the history of the Royal Artillery in Northwest Europe from January 1944 to August or Jan, January 1942 to August 1944, and it details. Uh, what I believe is the strongest combat arm of the British Army in the campaign in Northwest Europe, as well as in Italy and North Africa and Sicily, as well as other other uh, fronts and um, uh, theaters of the British Army during the Second World War. This is, of course, the, the Royal Artillery. And uh, they um, include within this book the accounts of the Royal Canadian Artillery. And I believe some of the best officers and the best technology, as well as the best tactics, organizational tactics, uh, organizational systems command and control uh is was exercised by the royal artillery and the british army um despite the you know or you know um you know is in conjunction with the the valiant efforts of the infantry and royal armor corps it was the royal artillery which very much won battles for the british army in normandy and allowed the british army to uh, swarm across france into the low countries and eventually invade germany um, the, the 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 sophistication the power the raw brute force of the royal artillery drove the germans back again and again and again and this uh, important new history, Gunners in Normandy by Cowan and Baldwin, um, provides an excellent, excellent uh, synthesis and, and historical chronicle of, of what made the Royal Artillery, Royal Canadian Artillery, uh, so effective. How they fought their battles, and not only the field artillery battle, but the anti-tank battle, the
1: anti-aircraft
0: battle, um, is you know, and then of course the, the 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 field artillery and the you know battle carried out by the medium regiments and the field artillery regiments, and of course their use of self-propelled artillery and uh, their their part in the very very important uh, D-Day um, Overlord. Operation Neptune, which is the amphibious portion of uh, Operation Overlord, how they, they participated in that as well, and how they broke the back of many German panzer attacks that attempted to drive the British Second Army into the sea after the uh, after the um, Normandy invasion. So yes, this is a, a masterful work with a huge amount of pages, a tremendous amount of bang for the buck, 600 and something pages, and it's, it's very good. Uh, the Douglas Nash books, there's three Three editions um, in this a three volume set dealing with this Fourth SS Panzer Corps, which has the Waffen SS Panzer divisions, the the Viking and the uh, Tokenkopf, and dealing with um, their attempts to to fight off the Russians and relieve Budapest and um, fight off the Russians as they attempt to attack Warsaw and many other important battles, leading up to their eventual surrender in the end of the war. But uh, Douglas Nash. Uh, Will Cowan and Frank Baldwin, um, three tremendous historians. And um, I do hope uh, the listeners can, can rush out and buy those books today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for being with us today, Arthur. Oh, thank it's very much my pleasure. I always enjoy
0: your company and being on your uh, your uh, radio show. Um, hopefully, I've given the, the the listeners enough bang for their buck today for for their time and invested in listening to this radio program. And oh, definitely my- you have.
1: And of course, if you when you you know inevitably write another book, you're always you know welcome here.
0: Oh, thank you very much.